welcome to Lucidations. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Rebecca Valentine, co-founder of Querious Labs in San Francisco. Rebecca Valentine, welcome. Hey, how's it going? So I billed you as the co-founder of Querious Labs, and I thought maybe we could start off by talking about what Querious Labs actually is. It's where we're recording now, so I um, I see all kinds of Querious things on the walls. But uh, yeah, so what exactly, um, where exactly are we and what goes on here? Yeah, so Querious Labs is a queer anarcho-feminist art space, uh, workshop, sometimes hacker space, depending on who you're talking to. Yeah, it's just like, it's a community space that's run by the community for creative technical projects, teaching, holding events, all sorts of things like that. So you mentioned it was uh, anarcho-feminist, and that might be a new term to some of our listeners. Um, it sounds like it's a combination maybe of anarchism and feminism. Uh, is that about right? Yeah. A lot of the motivation behind Curious Labs is a response to a very cishet, masculine tech culture here in San Francisco and in the Bay Area more generally. And so a lot of us come from kind of anarchist or uh, socialist communities, but here in the Bay Area, within the tech world, even within sort of the hacker world and, and the like, the art tech, that sort of intersection of communities, there is quite a lot of like masculine dominance and low-level sexism and misogyny and these sorts of things. And, you know, if you just look at tech, broadly speaking, well, that's just saturated with it, right? And so we created the space as a kind of response to that where we would have an anarchist take on what this kind of community could be like. You know, we're an anarchist take on hackerspaces, on community workshops, these sorts of things, which is not novel. But the feminist part of it kind of is. There have been other feminist hackerspaces or makerspaces like Double Union, but they haven't really been anarchist. They haven't been open. And so we wanted to sort of take a bunch of the things that we loved about various places and try to build a new thing that no one had really done before. Um, so in that context, it's anarcho-feminism or queer anarcho-feminism specifically. Yeah, so that's all very cool. What exactly is a hackerspace? Um, so a hackerspace is a space for hackers. Um, but the deeper question there is, what is a hacker, ultimately? Indeed. indeed. <laughs> um, is it a person that uh, breaks into banks and steals money? Well, no, that's a bank robber. But <laughs> uh, So a hacker is someone who, at least from my perspective, a hacker is someone who is passionate about the stuff that they do. Um, and that can be something computer-related or it can be uh, you know, knitting, it can be whatever, but typically it's someone who's passionate about it, does it because they love it and is sort of oftentimes doing it in a way that is not the standard way or the officially authorized way or stuff like this. So historically hackers, I mean, the term originates from MIT and people were like hacking on model train kits to sort of turn them into whatever they wanted the model train kits to be as opposed to the actual official thing that the kit was designed to be, right? And so they were like literally hacking their kits to pieces and, you know, reassembling them in all sorts of oh, ways. So there was actually whatever. literal severing of yeah. physical things. Yeah. And then it became like the, this was like the model train club that like half of the computer science department at MIT was in or something like this, right? Hmm. Which is why there was such an overlap with computer science and programmers. And then from there, it became sort of just 
the kinds of programmers that were, I don't want to say strictly speaking counterculture, but counter to the dominant culture in computers at the time, which is like, you know, the, the narrow ties of IBM, right? And the, the engineers, as opposed to like the people who just want to play around with computers and explore stuff. And we get into like the criminal aspects of hackers because, well, when you have a bunch of really curious geeks, right, and you present them with like a complex system such as, I don't know, the phone system, they're going to do some exploration and try to, you know, like understand the system and how to make it do what they want it to do, right? And so that's how you got phone freaks. But then as the phone networks became more and more computerized, to be a really good phone freak, you had to be a good computer hacker to like actually use computers and get them to do what you wanted, especially if they were computers you didn't control that instead the phone company controlled or a university controlled or whatever. And then you get like the whole story of like Kevin Mitnick and how he became uh, sort of public enemy number one because he was hacking into all sorts of fun stuff, mostly just for exploration. And then probably because of him, the whole notion of computer hacking as like a criminal thing happens. Uh, but the hacking, broadly speaking, is like, it's just looking at the world, being really interested in the world, and then... Fi- <laughs> uh, that's the doorbell. <laughs> but so throughout like the whole Kevin Mitnick thing, both before it and after it, there was still this tendency for hackers as a community to basically just be people who were looking at the world, seeing all of the cool stuff that was happening in the world, and then uh, figuring out their own ways of making it work and do stuff that they were interested in having it do. A lot of that was like computer-related, but um, it wasn't strictly speaking computer-related. And so you have a broader hacker culture, which is about hacking all sorts of things, whether it is model, model train kits or computers or you know, whether it's sewing or, you know, fabric hacking. So a hacker is just, a hacker is someone who, like, makes stuff, takes stuff apart to understand how it works. And very frequently, it's someone who doesn't, like, follow the rules that the thing sort of has set out for it, you know. Right, yeah. I mean, I get a lot of questions about this. Uh, There's an event in Chicago that I go to. Sometimes it's every week, sometimes it's biweekly, called Hack Night, and people often ask me, like, well, what goes on there? What do you, you know, what do you do at Hack Night? You know, do you break into other people's computers or something? And sometimes a verb I use to explain what it is is like tinkering, like sort of tinkering in an exploratory way to try to learn yeah. about something. I think the whole phenomenon of hacking is sort of um, politically interesting in a number of ways. Um, if you sort of think about how most of the stuff that we use and uh, purchase and consume and enjoy uh, is like mass produced, and because it's mass produced, the stuff that I buy in general is not going to be made specifically for me, Matt. It's going to be off the shelf, some general thing that lots of different people are going to get. And I'm not necessarily saying that's good or bad, but that's just a fact of about how, uh, what it's like to live right now. You know, and it has and, a purpose. It has mm-hmm. a well-defined purpose that has yeah. been put out there, and you don't have a say in it. Right. Exactly. Until um, you hack it. Exactly. And then you know, so it could be just as something as simple as. Uh, maybe as a child to get a toy and like I, you know, paint new eyebrows on it or something uh, to make it more like the toy that I would want. Um, or maybe another interesting sort of comparison or analogy might be like custom cars, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, turn into a big thing. Yeah. You know, customization right? and personalization is kind of a lot of what it's, what's about. 
but it's not about merely superficially doing things, right? A lot of, I mean, it can be, right? There's no reason that it, it, you can't just like, you know, hack your stuff by embroidering what you want on like your bag if you get a bag and you want like, you know, whatever. Like that's hacking, right? But a lot of it is also like just totally repurposing stuff in ways that is not even within the scope of what people intended it to be for, right? And it, yeah, I like that word repurposing a lot. Um, it turns out that uh, things can often have surprise uses that you didn't know that they were useful for. Oh, yeah. Um, this is about discovering those. Yeah. A lot of times, that's what people were doing with the phone system and the, and the computer networks that it was connected to. Actually, a great example of this, there's someone that I know who's a, uh, a Siri and Alexa hacker. And what he does is he gets these things to talk to one another. And it like automatically goes through this whole process because... Well, when you have two speaking things and two hearing things that can like interact with one another, that you get like weird cycles of conversations and stuff, and they can do stuff that you otherwise couldn't do. Like it was not even dreamed of by either of the groups of people who made these things, but like it's this weird kind of like it's almost feedback, but it's not quite feedback, right? Because like the one says something, the other responds and says something, and then the other responds and says something, and like neither of them know that they're not talking to a person. <laughs> and like that's like the coolest sort of hack, right? Where you get something where no one imagined that this is what people would do with it, right? And, but you can still get it to do something really cool. Yeah, wow. I imagine those conversations are pretty surreal. <laughs> they, they super are. Sometimes when I'm driving home, my um, GPS says, you know, turn left at such and such. And when that sound comes to the speaker, my Google Assistant thinks that that's me talking to it. And it, so th- my phone is effectively talking to itself. So <laughs> I can relate. This actually has connections to like video games too. We were just talking about like uh, uh, video games in the 90s. One of the main things that they designed Deus Ex for was uh, they wanted players to be able to feel like they could embody themselves in the game and play the game how they wanted, right? And the designers of the game, especially uh, Warren, uh, Warren Spector, who's the director, they were pleased most of all when players did things that they could never have predicted. And so, like, Warren Spector tells this story of how, like, he was doing a play test where he was watching someone play a level that he had seen be played, like, a thousand times over the course of the development of the game. And this person was just going to do some random thing. And he was like, no, there's no way that's going to work. Like, how's that? This is a big con. No. And then it works. It like, it gains the person access to wherever they were trying to go or something like this. And, and it's like, oh, that blew my mind. Right. And so like people who design games for this are still like blown away by people hacking, is basically hacking the game. But it's a beautiful thing when you see stuff like that happen. Right. So. One immediate connection to anarchism that I can think of, and this goes back to uh, episode 68 of Elucidations, where we talked to Mark Lance about anarchism. Um, It seems like one of the ideas behind that political philosophy is to uh, accomplish a lot of what we accomplish in the current system in a more sort of bottom-up manner, where some um, organized pattern of behavior uh, among a group of people uh, emerges out of an immediate need rather than, well, we decided in advance we need to have this group of people doing X, Y, Z, and they're going to see to it that that always, that that always happens. So you end up having, like, I don't know, a town council because there are some issues that the people living in this area need to address, and they think that their needs can be best served if they work together, rather than, 
well, like before anybody even moved here, we created this town and with a council and we imposed this, you know, governmental order on it in advance. I can sort of see a potential connection between, you know, the kind of uh, psychological temperament where you'd want to um, imaginatively think of new uses for things, um, where you'd want to, you know, sort of break down, reverse engineer the items in your vicinity and uh, try to arrive at a fuller understanding of them in this sort of like, um, you know, playful self-education way. So do you think there's a connection between those two things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The first thing I would say, by the way, is I'm not sure that I would actually agree with that notion of anarchism as like a core conception of anarchism. Okay, Um, cool. Because that seems like a very American perspective on anarchism. I I feel like the... And I could very well be botching Mark Lance's view. So yeah, any errors in this this, uh, this are due to me. This does though, this is a thing that like American anarchists sort of, this is like a very American perspective on anarchism. So like if Mark Lance is American, I would not be surprised if this is what (laughs) they were saying. But yeah, so like, I mean, if you talk to Spanish anarchists during the Spanish Civil War, uh, where they had like, complex networks of councils like factory councils and regional councils and all these sorts of things with like some fairly heavy structure involved like I think they would have said yes we're anarchists but what do you mean we definitely have these big complex organizations right I think they probably would have just argued that anarchism is sort of about abolishing power not about anarchism not anarchism is about like abolishing complex organizational structures historically it's not uncommon for power and like big structures to go together but like what is a chaotic dictatorship if not power with absolutely no good organizational structure i would disagree with tying those two things together fundamentally um i would i would say that it sounds more like what you're describing is adhocracy where structures and organizations emerge sort of as the need arises in an ad hoc fashion and it's just whatever emerges is the thing that's appropriate for the situation but I do think that there is a tendency, especially amongst uh, amongst like hackery communities, to sort of favor more ad hoc structures and to disfavor like big planning efforts and big organization efforts. Uh, I, I mean, even within perhaps less hackery communities, but more uh, West Coast tech communities this is especially true going right back through the history of say the internet the development of the internet itself was kind of there were these two forces there was the efforts by like the osi model people who wanted to like have a formal specification of like this big complicated thing that was going to be the internet and like it took them 20 years before they could get anything ratified and they finally ratified something in like 95 Right. And like, wait a second, 95 is like, that's when, that's when Netscape went public. Right. <laughs> like, I think it's too late, guys. <laughs> like, at that point, right. And there's a reason that it was 95 as opposed to like 1975 or something when like the first versions of TCPIP were put out there. And the reason is that like, when you want to plan everything out and make it perfect before you do anything, the people, and this goes back to what we were talking about with Miri and the whole human beneficial AI thing that we were talking about before the show. Like if you want to plan everything out ahead of time and have everything perfect before you ever do anything, you're going to get beaten to the punch by the people who don't give a damn about any planning, right? The people who are just like, I'm going to experiment, see what happens if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, right? And that's why TCPIP became the thing is because they, 
they wrote like a very tiny speck for like a corner of what they were trying to do. They didn't plan the, the next thousand years, right? And they implemented it, deployed it, and it was cool. And they just kept iterating. And that's very much in line with the hacker ethos, at least, is this sort of ad hoc, like, try it and see what works. And that, I think, is probably much more part of the spirit of anarchism, is uh, not necessarily like ad hoc structures, but because you can sort of do this with big organized structures, but it's more about the try things, see what works, and iterate, right? And you can have an, a, like an organization that does this. Lots of organizations sort of do this. Sometimes it doesn't work so good. Like Valve is one of these places where like anyone can sort of kind of work on they want on what they want and try things and iterate and whatever. But at the same time, like Valve as an organization kind of got stagnant because of this in weird ways. Um, and as background for the listeners, uh, Valve is a uh, um, uh, gaming company. Would that yeah. be accurate to say? Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting question, though, how you can get organized efforts, because a lot of things do require organization and coordinated efforts and these sorts of things without losing the the dynamism of being able to just like experiment with a thing and then iterate on it if it works really well. Yeah, like how do you, you know, it's the too many cooks problem or something, right? Yeah, and like I don't have an answer to how you do this, but I think probably like the most important thing is to at least consciously do this, right? To like be conscious of how you're doing things. You know, a lot of times you get organizations where they didn't intentionally set out to do this and they haven't really thought about what they're doing, even if it's like a small organization or a larger, like whatever it is, like they often don't, they don't do these things consciously. And as a consequence, they can't sit and reflect on what they're doing and how they're doing any of this stuff. And I think that's the biggest trap, right? You just do it because that's how you do it. And if it doesn't work, well, that's how we do it. <laughs> and then you're sort of stuck. It must secretly actually work. Yeah. I mean, it probably works for someone. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, that I mean, that's another one of these traps in the hacker community is like, and it's, you know, it's the world more broadly speaking, but like, since we're sitting here in Curious Labs, which partially exists because of frustrations with this sort of stuff, uh, when it works for someone and they have now a vested interest in like preserving the way it is, you know, like if you have a, a hackerspace that has all sorts of like gross misogynistic stuff going on or whatever, and you can't deal with it because it works for the dudes who can dominate a space or whatever. Well, I mean, it works for them, right? So why would they want to change it? And so it doesn't get changed. You know? um, Actually, that gets me to a kind of related question. So we talked about the connection between anarchism um, and uh, the kinds of activities that hackers enjoy engaging in. Is there a, also a deep connection between feminism uh, and the kinds of activities that hackers enjoy engaging in? Um, sometimes I like to like build this romantic image in my head of like, well, feminists are hacking gender roles or, so, or maybe even hacking gender itself. So I would say that Yes, there is, but this is sort of like ignoring the fact that hackers and hacker culture is a living thing outside of like my politics. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like hacker culture historically has been very male dominated, very sort of masculine in temperament or however you want to think about it, right? There's like a lot of some people would describe it as like masculine energy driving a lot of what hacker culture is about, right? And like, and the ad hocracies of Wikipedia, for instance, like some people have described Wikipedia as leveraging male geeks' desires to one-up each other and be right about everything for the common good, 
right? And that's how you get Wikipedia to be really good is you, you take advantage of that particular toxicity of geek maleness. Oh boy, I hope that's not correct, but it seems like it could be. Well, but like, why does anyone correct a Wikipedia article that's wrong? Because, oh, well, I, I know what I'm talking about, right? So I'm going to, but I mean, it works. Actually, I mean, it does work, right? Except for some topics which are slightly more contentious than physics, right? So like hacker culture is like very male dominated. And so while there is like, you know, in theory, there should be a connection between hacking gender and opposing systems of uh, power as made manifest in gender and like subverting implicit assumptions that you have about people, like all of these things, right? Like very much in line with a lot of what hackerdom is supposed to be about. But the reality of the situation is that that's not how it is. Like there are lots of super rad feminist hackers and lots of super rad women who are like, hacking all sorts of interesting, atypical, non-traditionally masculine things, right? But that's a new version of hacker culture. Like, yes, women have been doing computing for ages, but hacker culture. Yeah, like like the mainstream of the culture. Right. Right, yeah. One thing I heard, I don't know if this is true, but one thing I've heard is that sort of computer geekery became um, coded as male starting like around the 1980s mm-hmm. when computers were marketed, particularly to little boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once fast forward 15, 20 years later and everybody's in college, suddenly, you know, the boys have been playing with these computers that have been marketed to them from a young age. As a result of that, perhaps partially, everybody thinks of, you know, technology is a masculine thing. Yeah. Whereas before this happened in the 80s, uh, it was not thought of that way. And, and indeed, uh, uh, people often like to note that, you know, computer was originally a term for a human being who performed computations. Mm-hmm. And often those back in the olden days before it became prestigious were women. Mm-hmm. Um, does that history at all uh, uh, track to your mind? Oh, yeah. Uh, so you said a very important word there, prestigious, which is it is not uncommon for women's work to become men's work the moment the work becomes prestigious or valuable in some way, whether that's like for the prestige value or the monetary value or anything like this, you end up getting the moment that people start caring about it and it starts to be something like useful and valuable to people is the moment that these things tend to be coded as masculine. Uh, and often, still waiting for that to happen to teaching. Yeah. Um, well, no, but here's the thing, right? Is if you go back to like roughly Victorian era, stuff indeed in especially in england right where like being a schoolmaster or being a like being a even just like a teacher at a what we would call like a private school but what they would call a public school because it's england and they say (laughs) things weirdly um being a teacher at an english public school was like very prestigious right and so it was basically dominated by like men with phds so like yeah a lot of these things are you know, tightly connected to um, prestige is ultimately in some sense connected to power. And like th- these things are intertwined in all sorts of ways. Right. And, and you do see this through the history of technology and especially computing is, you know, the moment that computers became really valuable and prestigious and, and when you could like, you could get rich off of computing and you could like make a bunch of money actually doing programming and stuff. And you can make a career of it. And what it, this, that was the moment that all of this stuff became mail-coded. And it was like a very conscious thing, right? Like you can see when the, the advertising changed. <laughs> like the 
you go look in the ads, right? It's, it's around the same time that Legos changed, actually. Legos used to be uh, uniformly marketed to everyone. And then right around the same time that computers were becoming coded as mail, so were Legos. For we like it's very strange, and so now these kind of like bricks. I don't know, yeah. I get like building things, right? construction. You know, like, but like it makes no sense. Like it yeah, was none of this makes any sense. It's like you're playing with toy blocks. They just why is this? And so now you have like Legos for girls, and they're like pink Legos, and it's like <laughs> if you look at the advertisements in the seventies, it's like half of the people in the ads were women or girls. Like what is what's happening here? Uh, there's you know. There is something really amazing about just looking at how previous era, what previous eras have viewed as masculine or feminine or what have you, um, just what stereotypical associations people have had with different things. And you don't have to go back that far at all to uh, see how in flux all this stuff is. So as a linguist, I used to be very conscious of cross-cultural variation and sort of cross-cultural variation in also the sense of not just here versus Japan, right? But also like here versus here 300 years ago, which was basically a different culture, right? And like, you have to be conscious of these things when you're doing linguistic research, because if you're not, you know, all sorts of things which are highly tied to culture get mistaken as being highly associated with language. And like, you have to put on your sort of your anthropologist's glasses to look at the world as cultures as well as the thing. And like when you do that with gender, it's so interesting because all sorts of stuff that you think are like canonically masculine or canonically feminine, you just go like today, you just go to South Korea, right? And you have who are like the pop stars, the men who are idolized, a lot of them are like kind of effeminate and like very soft. And like, if they were brought here, there would be so many people who think that they're just gay, right? Because they have all of these qualities that are much more effeminate and like girly and whatever. And it's because, well, that's in South Korea, like this is not associated with gender in the same way that it is here. It's like just not the lines that cut reality and cut human behavior are not in the same places in Korea. I've often had similar thoughts about 80s metal, you know, with <laughs> makeup and the uh, teased hair and so forth. Yeah, like how is it that Queen could go from having a bunch of folks who are often like androgynous to then having folks who are like hyper-masculine? Like look at Freddie Mercury during the two, you know, stylistically most diametrically opposed parts in that band's history, right? Going from like androgynous early days to like super butch masculine handlebar mustache like later like and yet at the same time like that's in the context it's still considered quite a masculine thing throughout his entire history like that whole aesthetic change was still that was a masculine aesthetic change it was not yeah we're we can go down the list you know judas priest uh took a I don't know how many years, 20 years for the lead singer of that band to come out as gay, you know, with the leather studded attire and so forth. And when the band came out, it was just viewed as, you know, hyper masculine, hyper butch. But like the reality of it was uh, he was closeted. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely something very interesting to be said about the interaction between gay male culture in relation to being closeted, but still gay 
and then seeing how that interacts to produce forms of hypermasculinity that then affect how straight guys behave and then end up like coding themselves in ways that like if you know a bunch of gay guys you know that this straight guy happens to be like taking a lot of influence from but because they don't know that it's a gay signifier until it becomes well known you would never have known and so you get like this weird yeah (laughs) it's kind of funny to see that happen homophobes accidentally appropriating gay iconography right because gay iconography is often about like hyper masculinity and like what it means to be really really manly because if you're a gay guy you're i guess into really manly dudes right yeah this is the magic of kenneth anger we're getting at right now so you mentioned your work in linguistics and i definitely want to say something about that because i i may have mentioned once or twice in the podcast i don't know if i have uh that my doctoral research was in philosophy of language and one question i often get about it is uh well how is it relevant to anything isn't it just sort of this pie in the sky theoretical thing and one of the projects that you've worked on is one of the things I always point to, not in a like taking credit for it kind of way, but it's one of the things I always point to as kind of an amazing example of how really difficult, really abstract, super mathematical, abstract linguistic theory can be brought to bear on a concrete technical problem. And basically just by coding up some of the pen and paper theories in a very careful way, you know, you've been able to make a computer do something that I previously really couldn't do, um, you know, understand certain fragments of natural language. Linguistics is useless, kids. Don't do it. <laughs> um, right. So maybe what you want to say is that uh, my example is uh, uh, completely asked backwards because uh, actually... Um, uh... <laughs> so, you know, okay. So this is like one of those tensions, right, that exists within computer-related language stuff, whether it's like formal linguistics that's being mechanized via computers or whether it's like people doing natural language processing or like that whole world of languages and computers in some way intersecting. There is a tension between, between the two sides of like the very theoretically informed people and the, in many ways, anti-theory people, right? That like throw more data at it people. And I have thought about this a lot over the years and tried to like make an argument that theory is very important or whatever. And like lots of things could be said, but basically what it comes down to is um, consider the following fact. Anytime that you want to train your natural language processing models, your, your throw more data at it models on something to like get the right probabilities or whatever, right? What do you do? Well, typically you like, you take a parsed corpus, like the New York Times corpus, the GigaWord corpus, what it just takes a massive corpus of parsed sentences, and then you train the heck out of your model so that it performs really well on this reference corpus, right? And it's like you... Parsing a corpus means that maybe like some enterprising graduate students have gone through a whole bunch of New York Times right. transcripts and been like, this right. is the subject, this is the verb, right. this is the noun, all that, you know, they've annotated in that way. Right. So like what the what the folks who are like, oh, we, we just need more data and more, you know, just throw more data at the problem, then it'll get perfect. What they sort of forget, the thing that like the data obsessed natural language processing people forget is that like if you didn't have theoretically aware grad students 
spending years of their lives manually parsing and deploying the theory on the New York Times corpus, they would have nothing to train, right? So like, even if you think, yes, just throw more data at the problem, which is like objectively that actually makes things work better. Like you still need all of these people to know the theory, to give you your reference corpus. So like, sure, if you don't like theory, then you don't get to use the New York Times corpus and you can, you're fucked. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not like the data were just there and we like grabbed them, right? It's like uh, we had to get experts to yeah. kind of make the data. You have to know what you're trying to parse in the first place. Like no one goes out there and it's like, let's parse your stuff. Let's make a neural network that parses really, really well. But they don't have pre-parsed training data. Like you, it doesn't, that's not how it works. You know, like yeah. you can do end to end neural network stuff, right? But like that only does a certain class of things. You can only use that for a certain class of problems. And sometimes that's not what you need. (laughs) So this idea of like, oh, we don't really need theory is like, well, you may not need theory, but all of the stuff that you're depending on needed theory. So, yeah. Right. And, you know, always the area that I get most excited about, regardless of whether it's tech stuff, philosophy stuff, linguistic stuff, are just places where you have this symbiosis between uh, theory and application, where it's not like the only reason we're even doing the theory is to for better short-term rewards or something, but it's also not like we're not even thinking at all about how what we're doing is relevant to uh, everyday living. There's just sort of like a healthy interplay between those two things. Yeah, so this like connection between theoretical work and the applied stuff and how it, it has an impact on everyday life in some way is like... In the context of linguistics, it has this nice oppositional structure. But the thing that I thought of as you were saying that was, well, there's a philosophy podcast or philosophy-ish podcast. You talk about lots of stuff, but let's just say it's a philosophy podcast. Uh, That's usually what we say. So the thing that came to mind was how, like, well, philosophy is in many ways theorizing, sort of. I mean, theory is often used for whatever. It's closer to theorizing than digging a hole is, right? Yeah, sometimes when people ask me what philosophy is, I like to say the theory of anything. Yeah, so not the theory of everything, the theory of anything. Any old thing. Um, This is like very Merleau-Ponty, right? (laughs) What is the theory of this? Just the the texture. So like what I was thinking when you said that, when you were talking about the connections between theory and applied stuff and its impact on everyday life is like in computer science now there's a, and like tech there's this interesting sort of thing that's happening where like philosophers is it, ethicists are like taking a serious look at what has happening in like big tech and saying hey you know you need to start thinking about how you're impacting people like materially impacting people and we need to start having things like you know well engineers have to go through ethics classes like legitimately get trained in ethics to some degree and like maybe software developers should too because you are having material impacts on people's lives but you have absolutely no clue what you're doing and so you have the the theorists of the most theoretical subjects you could have right like philosophers coming in and saying you are having like real world everyday impacts on people. And like, this is interesting, right? Like you have, instead of like the theorists and the applied folks being sort of having this opposition, instead what you have is theorists saying, we need to train you in theory because 
there's like things that you should be applying it to every day, but you just don't because you don't know it or you don't care. <laughs> and so it's like the theory and the, and the practical application in that case is like the same group of people. And they're, they're talking to the other group of people who kind of don't care about the application of their technology. They just want to make the technology, but they also don't care about the theoretical implications of it. It's like really interesting. There's this third camp that's, it's not theory or applied. It's the, the masturbatory technologist <laughs> who, who is neither theoretically nor pragmatically inclined hmm. <laughs> and just does it because it's fun. Yeah, yeah. And God, they need some theory and some praxis. I think I feel like um, often doing something because it's fun, though, can sometimes that can be shorthand for, um, you know, I do care about the practical implications and I do care about the beauty of the theory, but I don't really know how to express it all exactly right now in this moment. I could just tell I have an instinct. Oh, for sure. That, it's, that this is important. I'm going to do it. For sure. Like there is definitely like I do that a whole bunch. Right. But there are also like a lot of people who just like working on a problem that's like interesting and challenging and they don't really care. Like these are the folks who go, they get hired from Black Hat and go work at the NSA because it's a hard crypto problem or whatever. Like the, this is, for those listening, Black Hat is a security technology conference that's happening in Vegas as we record this, which is why it's relevant. Uh, but like, these are the folks who like Bruce Sterling admonishes when the person in the suit comes to you and tries to hire you for a really cool, hard problem with a big fat paycheck, you're going to have to sit down and think like there are ethical implications to this. Right. And like, it's not just a fun problem. You're doing more than just having fun solving cryptography problems. You might be like doing the work that ends up like putting people in prison for political reasons, or like, like if you work at Palantir, right, you're materially supporting something which qualifies according to the Geneva Conventions as genocide. Like that's, th these things have real implications and it's not just solving a fun problem. <laughs> right. And I feel like, uh, you know, to a certain extent, this is the condition of anybody working in, you know, uh, anybody earning a paycheck under contemporary capitalism. Um, but maybe there's a there's way. There's no which ethical production under capitalism. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. But I, maybe it somehow gets amplified uh, in tech because um, there's the opportunity to deploy it and use it in such powerful ways that can have such huge, you know, ramifications for massive numbers of people. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is a question that is not new, right? You can go back to the Renaissance and look at people having conversations with like folks like Da Vinci, who on the one hand, amazing artist, amazing engineer, also built weapons of war, right? And like, that's a conversation that people have had for a very long time. Like, you can't fund this amazing, beautiful art without also simultaneously, like somehow getting involved in the war industry. Like, it's not a new conversation, right? It's, and it's probably not going to go away anytime soon. Like in 10,000 years, people will still be having, after World War V or whatever, and we've nuked ourselves back to oblivion, people will still be asking, like, you know, I get that you can use this, like, really amazing, this really amazing stone axe to, you know, carve some wood, but also that wood can be used to, you can throw it and stab someone with it. Like, after World War V, we'll still be having this conversation in, in our new, the new Stone Age. But, like, I think this is just fundamentally a consequence of something which very visibly has an impact on the world in a transformative way. Like technology, technology and science materially changed the world in big, obvious ways, 
right? Whereas art and culture related things like art literature, those sorts of things, they change the world too, but it's harder to see the causal connection. And so we don't have the same anxieties until we do. Like what's happening in the media right now is like people are trying to blame a, a massacre on video games, right? In that context, suddenly people have this consciousness of the idea that cultural artifacts can impact the world. I mean, that's another one of these old narratives, like video games cause violence. But like, we tend to avoid seeing direct connections between cultural products and the consequences that they have. Whereas with technology, it's very hard to be like, well, this new thing is not responsible for, well, no, like you literally could not have like killed a whole city full of people without an atom bomb. Like that's, there is an obvious causal connection. And so it's relatively easy to drop into conversations about the connections there. Whereas with other things, it's harder. I don't think though that it's unique to technology or anything like this. Like these are. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point. It's like, um, if you're comparing, uh, well, you mentioned TCP IP earlier, uh, which for non-technical listeners uh, is a way for computers to talk to each other over the network, which the internet still currently uses to have you know one computer over here to be able to talk to any other computer on the entire internet. Um, it's a way of establishing a persistent line of communication between the computers. So clearly the creation of that technology had really deep ramifications in the sense that, yeah, we can have, I can like now be connected to somebody in Dubai or in Eritrea or wherever. With a tech example, it's very easy to say this possibility was opened up and it didn't exist before. Whereas if you look at, I don't know, like 19th century impressionist painting, we do have a strong sense that it transformed the way we see things. I would actually say, let's say romanticism instead. Okay. Not impressionism, let's say romanticism. Mm -hmm. Because romanticism as an art movement is intimately related to Nazism. Like you can, Mm -hmm. there is a causal connection there between the two. But it's not something that a lot of people know about and it's hard to like actually see. And so the romanticists had this whole, it was an romanticist artists were part of a broader romanticist movement, which was about rejection of rationalism, about embracing uh, sort of emotions and impulses and all these sorts of things. And eventually in the context that it developed, it turned into romantic nationalism. And the connections from that to Nazism are much clearer because the Romantic Nationalists ended up founding a whole bunch of things like the Tula Society and other parts of the Volkischer movement in Germany. And then in Italy, they had their own thing, which was like sort of neo-Roman as opposed to neo-whatever you would call ancient Germanic people. like Teutonic. Uh, yeah, neo-Teutonic. Yeah, I guess that's the word. Uh, and so they founded societies like the Tula Society and whatever, and then out of those literally came the Nazi party, right? And like, when you look at the philosophy that was embedded in early fascism, Italian fascism, like you look at the Italian futurists and the Futurist Manifesto, it's very much this like anti-rationalist embrace of impulsivity and all of this sort of stuff. And that is directly connected to the Romanticist movement. But it's hard to see that connection. I mean, it spans like 70 years or whatever. And like, it's not very visible and obvious, but it is like, literally it's an art movement and somehow you get Nazis out of it. And you can see this trend within fascist ideology still cropping up today, right? Like one of the reasons people love Trump 
is because he's like very much like shoot from the hips, sort of, you know, very impulsive, anti-rationalist kind of person. And it's the same kind of ethos. Obviously, there's more to like fascism than just that, right? But there are these connections. Yeah. So for people who are curious to see logic, philosophy, language, and linguistics in action, uh, I would encourage you to just go on YouTube and look for the language engine demo. It's absolutely astonishing. I've never seen anything like it before. I showed it to a friend of mine once who's an expert in computational semantics, and he was like, what? Is there a little person in the computer like feeding the answers? Because I, this is just like magic or something. One way I sometimes describe it to people is, uh, you know how in Star Trek, when Captain Picard talks to the computer and like asks the computer to do things, it's kind of like that. Imagine you had that kind of interface where you could just ask your computer to do stuff and it wouldn't get really confused the way Siri does. That is exactly what I was thinking of when I was doing it too. <laughs> uh, so uh, I would encourage everybody to go check that out. And I would also encourage everybody to check out QueriousLabs.com. That's Q-U-E-E-R-I-O-U-S-L-A-B-S.com. That's the uh, nonprofit where we're recording this. And uh, you please go to the website, check it out. Donations are always welcome. Read the manifesto. It's read really the, good. Read the manifesto. Indeed, it is excellent. And Rebecca Valentine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at, at ElucidationsPod. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.